Our epistle lesson this morning comes from Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, may have, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, After the order of Melchizedek, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that we are able to come into your presence this morning. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. Would you send your word to us that we may receive it, that it wouldn't return to you void, but would accomplish its purposes here this morning. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we've started a new tradition in the Lawler House. It's a tradition called Family Movie Night. Some of y'all may uh, do Family Movie Night or have done Family Movie Night with your kids. And if your kids are anything like ours, they want Family Movie Night to be every night. But unfortunately, it's not. It is flexible in our house. And so this past week during Family Movie Night, we watched the last movie in the Cars trilogy. And in Cars 3, a new character is introduced. Her name is Cruz Ramirez. Cruz is a yellow, sporty-looking race car trainer. She's as fast as the young race cars she's training, but instead of being on the racetrack, she's in the car gym working with other cars on treadmills and working with cars on a simulator, training these race cars in hopes that they would be the next great racer. And you find out that she's tasked with training Lightning McQueen, He's the main character throughout this trilogy. And at this point in the movies, Lightning McQueen is old. He's washed up. He's slow. He's getting smoked in every race. He's just getting thumped every time. He's slowing down. He's just hoping to not ruin his career when he comes to Cruz Ramirez and hoping to get in better shape. But instead of getting him back into racing shape, Cruz fails miserably over and over and over again. McQueen isn't getting any faster. In fact, on these new fancy training machines, he's just fumbling around 
He's failing miserably. And after a series of these failures, Cruz Ramirez loses total confidence in Lightning McQueen and loses total confidence in her capacity to train him and to make him a faster race car. She just quits and she drives off. She abandons her responsibilities to Lightning McQueen. And you find out in this process of failure and abandonment that this is a pattern in her life. She had dreams of being a great race car. She had dreams of being on the racetrack all her life. And once, when she was younger, she had that opportunity. She got to the racetrack and was lining up and realized that the other cars were louder, they were more aggressive, they had bigger engines, and they were intimidating. In the face of that intimidation, these big bully race cars, they did what all bully race cars do. They intimidate. And in the face of that intimidation, she withdrew from the race, didn't even start, and she drove off not to enter a race again. When her confidence was shaken, instead of entering into that one place that she belonged, she was as fast as all of the other race cars. Instead of entering in that one place that she belonged, she withdrew. And these early Christians in Hebrews were facing intimidation. They were facing difficulty and distress. They were facing significant intimidation outside the church, outside of themselves, and their confidence began to falter. It began to fail them. They were tempted to withdraw from God and to turn back to their old ways. They were tempted to abandon their confession of Jesus and turn back, revert back to Judaism. They were seeking to supplement Jesus with old religious rituals and practices. And by doing so, they would inevitably supplant Jesus as king of their lives. And when faced with intimidation, when faced with difficulty and distress, our confidence in God is also shaken. Instead of drawing close to God, instead of going to that place that we belong as Christians, that Jesus has opened up, we withdraw from him. Instead of going to that place where we would receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, we take what's left of our fragile little confidence and we seek refuge in people and places that are ultimately unable to handle our needs. We run to old ways of living, just like these Hebrews. We run to old ways of doing life, or we create new equally broken and false ways of living instead of going to the one place where we can find help, instead of going to the one place that we find hope. We run to a host of different things. But Hebrews paints an alternative picture for us, paints an alternative picture of what confidence looks like before God. And it says that we have confidence to enter into God's presence, to come before him, because Jesus stands to represent you there. Before the throne of God, Jesus stands to represent you, and your confidence before God has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with your greatness, and it has everything to do with Jesus' greatness and what he has done for you and what he does for you. Just as the high priest in Israel would pass through the people and he would enter into the Holy of Holies, into the sanctuary, and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So Jesus passed through the heavens, and he entered the heavenly sanctuary 
stands before the throne of God and he intercedes for you there. And you can have confidence to approach his throne because Jesus is there representing you. But why would you trust him? Why would you trust Jesus? What has Jesus done to prove that he is a worthy representative, to prove that he's a worthy high priest? First thing in this passage that we see is that Jesus has entered your experience. You can see you have confidence before God because Jesus knows your weaknesses. Verse 15 in chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus understands what it means to be truly human. He understands the weaknesses and the frailty of the human condition because he took to himself a human nature. He knows what it's like to bleed real blood. He knows what it's like to feel real emotions. He knows what it's like to deal with real temptations. Jesus wasn't faking it, is what this is saying. He entered into your experience. But unfortunately, we actually tend to treat Jesus or think of him more along the lines as like 90% God and 10% man. We would never say it out loud because that would mean that we're heretics and we don't, uh, we don't believe the gospel. We would never say it out loud, but we still treat Jesus that way. We treat him as if he's pseudo-human, just kind of human and mostly God. Maybe he was a man when he walked on this earth, but now that he's resurrected and he's at the right hand of the Father, he's not really human anymore. We don't treat him that way. But that's not at all how Hebrews treats him. Hebrews 4 speaks of Jesus in the present, right now, at the right hand of God, able to sympathize with your weaknesses right now, today, because he entered into your experience of humanity. But when Jesus became human, he did it sinlessly. He did it without sin. This means that Jesus, as your representative before God, was victorious over temptation. It means that every temptation he faced, he triumphed over. He knows your weaknesses, but he doesn't know your failures, which is a good thing. We don't want a representative before God to know our failures. We, we need him to have victory. We need him to have paved the path to victory. We need him to earn it for us. But his sinlessness also means that Jesus' experience of temptation was more intense than your experience of it. He actually felt the weaknesses of humanity and the temptation to sin more deeply than you do. One commentator put it this way, his sinlessness meant that the temptations came to him with a sharpness far greater than is known to us whose minds and wills have become dull through frequent failures. It's like my kids on Christmas. They were freaking out over gifts. Do I freak out over gifts? No, because I've grown dull. Over years of experiencing gifts on Christmas, I've just grown dull to the experience of it. My four-year-old doesn't have years of frequent dullness. She is freaking out, tearing into gifts. Jesus experiences the temptations that he felt intensely. And because of our failures, we've grown callous. We've grown callous to sin. We've grown dull to temptation. But Jesus doesn't experience that callousness. 
He doesn't experience that dullness. Every temptation he experienced, he experienced in its fullness, and he still won. And he still went into victory. And it's precisely because he entered into your experience, because he knows what it's like to be human, and he became man, that he can then function as your advocate before God. So secondly, you can trust Jesus because he was appointed as your advocate. The author of Hebrews makes a a pretty simple argument here in verses 1 to 6. He said, Every priest is appointed by God from among men to represent men. And now Jesus has been appointed as the final high priest from among men to represent men before God. Jesus has been appointed as your final high priest. He didn't seek that on his own, but that office was given to him. He did not exalt himself, verse 5, to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the high priest in Israel had one main responsibility, The author said it was to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This means that their primary responsibility was to deal with Israel's fundamental problem, the problem of sin. They were to once a year enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and they were to offer sacrifice for the people to atone for their sins, to deal with the people's sin in relation to God. And so Israel's fundamental problem, it wasn't physical, it wasn't social, it wasn't relational or mental, it was spiritual. And they needed a spiritual solution. So a man was appointed by God to offer sacrifices as a human representative for the people before God. The difference, though, between those former high priests And Jesus, our great high priest, our final high priest, is that the former would have to offer sacrifices for themselves. They would have to offer a sacrifice for themselves in order to deal with the sin of the people. They had to first deal with their sin before they could deal with the sin of the rest of Israel. Jesus doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. When he was appointed by God as your advocate, he was appointed as the sinless son, as the sinless high priest. So Jesus stands as your advocate, as your representative before God, not pleading your case to him, but pleading his, pleading his sinlessness, pleading his victory. If you were to go to court today, you would hire a lawyer Or the court would appoint one for you if you couldn't afford one. And that lawyer's job is to plead your case, to stand before the judge and the jury and make a case for you, to plead your case. But when Jesus acts as your advocate before the throne of God, he doesn't do so as a lawyer. He does so as a priest. He does so as a sacrifice, pleading his sinlessness, pleading his victory over sin and temptation in your place. Standing in that gulf that lies between you and God because of your sin, he stands there and he acts as your advocate and he was appointed by God so you can trust him. 
as your incarnate, sinless priest, Jesus' mission, as we'll see in verses 7 to 10, was to offer himself as the sacrifice for your sins. So he doesn't stand simply as the perfect advocate, but he also became your substitute. So the final reason you can have confidence before God, in the sight of God, to enter into his presence, to draw near to him in your time of need, it's because Jesus suffered for your salvation. Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. When it says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, it's not simply talking about the whole of Jesus' ministry. He certainly offered prayers and supplications. He did that for his disciples. He did that for the lost world. He did that for Jerusalem and Israel. And yes, he cried with tears, real tears, not fake tears. He cried for Lazarus, his friend, and at Lazarus' death, he cried for uh, disobedient Jerusalem. But that's not what this is talking about per se. It's referring to a particular instance when Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This is talking about the dark hour of Gethsemane. When Jesus felt the physical, emotional, spiritual anguish and turmoil of the temptation to withdraw from the purposes of God, he was feeling all of the weight of what was about to happen to him. But instead of withdrawing at Gethsemane, Jesus walked into death on Golgotha. He learned obedience through the suffering he endured on the cross. He obeyed fully. And the anguish, the pain, the turmoil he experienced of Calvary wasn't simply physical suffering. We like to think of the cross as mere physical suffering, but when Jesus walked into death, when he knocked on death's door, he walked into the judgment of God. Jesus hanging on the cross, he, he plumbed the depths of human sinfulness. And he received it into himself. He took it onto himself and he drank up the cup of God's wrath on the cross for you. So he suffered for your salvation. It's not simply that Jesus threw away the sins of the world, but he took them into himself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God made him, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So he didn't just throw away sin. He actually took it on himself. He didn't simply placate the wrath of God, but he drank it to its dregs. Paul says also in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' supreme act of obedience to God was to offer himself as that sacrifice for sins. This was the plan the whole time. The point of the incarnation was the crucifixion and the resurrection, the victory over sin and death. The purpose of Christmas is Good Friday and Easter. It's victory through suffering. And by drinking up the wrath of God on the cross, he became that source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him, for everyone who would confess his name. Jesus suffered for your salvation. He became your substitute through his death so that you would have confidence before God to enter into God's presence and to find mercy and grace in your time of need. That was the point. So I'll close with this. You're probably wondering this whole time what happened at the end of Cars 3. (laughs) So I'll tell you. At the end of Cars 3, Lightning McQueen is in this big race. He's been training. He's been training hard. He was training in the sand. He trained uh, in a derby race. He's been training hard. And so he's finally made it to this big race that he's been training for. But in the middle of the race, he comes to the realization that he ain't winning. He comes to the realization that he's just not fast enough. He has slowed down. These young guys are way too fast, and he can't catch them. So what does he do? He pulls into the pits. If y'all don't know what the pits are, that's where cars change tires and get gas. He pulls into the pits, and he sees Cruz Ramirez, and he gives her her big shot at becoming a race car. And he tells, she pushes back on him a little bit and says, but... But Lightning, this is your last chance. And he says, you're right. This is my last chance to give you your first chance. And so she takes his number. She takes his sponsor. She takes his place in the race. And during the race, one of those fancy young cars that likes to intimidate people, he begins to intimidate Cruz. And her confidence again begins to falter. But this time she's not alone. This time she doesn't have to do it alone. The legendary Lightning McQueen stands as her crew chief, the voice in her ear, telling her what to do and telling her what's true. You know, that's what the author of Hebrews does for us today. He tells us what to do and he tells us what's true. We can have confidence to enter God's presence because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We can also have confidence to enter God's presence because of the continued work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary at the right hand of God. He stands there as your great high priest before God's throne, understanding all of your weaknesses, able to sympathize with what it means to be human, but pleading his case based on his suffering for your salvation. And so you can trust him. He's given you his number. He's given you his sponsor. He's given you his place. He's earned your righteousness for you. He has suffered for your salvation. And so you can follow him. Trust him and follow him into the presence of God 
where you will find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you offered your son, Jesus, as the final sacrifice for sins. Jesus, we give you thanks that you drank up the cup of God's wrath and removed our sin from us. Spirit, we give you thanks for applying that to our lives. Would you continue to teach us what it means to enter into that heavenly sanctuary, to approach your throne of grace with confidence, holding fast our confession, knowing that it's there, that we will find mercy and grace. Would you give us that mercy and grace this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.